I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the writer and producer, Katie Englehart, author of the new book, The Inevitable, Dispatches on the Right to Die. Katie is also a fellow at the New America Think Tank. Her story, What Happened in Room 10, about the first COVID outbreak in an American nursing home, recently won a George Polk Award for magazine reporting. Previously, Katie has worked as a documentary film correspondent and producer at NBC News, a foreign correspondent for Vice News, and a Europe reporter for the Canadian magazine McLean's. As we're all grappling with so much loss, grief, and death around COVID-19, we thought Katie's perspective is particularly important and prescient right now in terms of understanding not only the right to die, but also mourning and end-of-life decisions in general. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Katie. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. So first off, congratulations on your new book, The Inevitable. I wanted to begin with, when did you start reporting on this subject? Like, I understand you had an experience covering issues related to it in the UK, and then you started to look at it here in the United States. Yeah, so it started way back in 2015. I was working for Vice News as a reporter in Europe, and I was assigned to cover a pretty basic parliamentary debate over whether or not to pass a physician-assisted death law. And I found the story sort of vaguely interesting, but also very predictable. Mm. It felt like it was the same story I'd heard for 20 years, and I could have written it in advance. You know, on the one hand, you had people arguing for patient autonomy. On the other hand, you had critics warning that this kind of law would lead to a slippery slope and the forced killing of old and vulnerable people. And it was pretty obvious from the start that the government just wasn't going to pass it. And in fact, it did fail. But in the course of that reporting, I just started meeting people who didn't really care whether the law passed or not because mm. they were already making their own arrangements. And I learned that you know, while the right to die movement has been around for decades, it's been really changed by the internet. There's a lot of organizing going on. There are people getting together and, and helping each other find ways to access what they would describe as a peaceful death. And I realized that, you know, it was sort of besides the point to focus on the law. I should instead be focusing on people who were planning their own endings on their own. Mm. So you spent four years reporting this book. What did that entail? I traveled. I started in the UK, but then I went to other countries in Europe where this is legal. I then moved to the United States and spent a long time looking at the state of assisted death here. So physician-assisted death is legal in nine states in D.C., but again, we see a lot of people who are organizing outside of the law, away from medical offices, away from their families, away from polite conversation, I guess you could say. <laughs> and so I started finding and seeking out cases that I think sort of tested me morally. I didn't want to write a book full of the stories people had already heard, you know, of very old men, very old women who are very, very sick with some sort of terminal cancer or heart disease and who are 
really asking for the last weeks of their life to be cut short. You know, those stories are important, but again, they've been told. I started looking at stories that I found more complicated. What do we do about someone with dementia who wants to end her life because she doesn't want to lose her sense of self? What about someone who's chronically ill but could theoretically live for decades or decades? What about someone who's just in her 80s and has doesn't enjoy being old and doesn't think she wants to grow any older and seems very certain of herself? What do we do? How do we respond to those people? And my feeling was the traditional answer has been just don't engage. Doctors are very hesitant to get into these sort of conversations, especially around complicated cases. And so they just don't get discussed. Mm. Well, you chose six particular stories or subjects, I guess. How did you settle on these particular people out of everybody that you spoke with? I wish I could say I had some brilliant master plan from the start. It was, you know, this is my first book. I was just talking to anyone I could. I was interviewing hundreds of people, but in the end, I, I found a sort of progression of cases. So the book starts with a doctor in California who I spent a month with, and he ran a kind of assisted death clinic. So basically his entire practice was helping people to die in, in a way that was, is legal in California. Mm. And then I moved forward with cases that I think become more morally tangled. And then in the end, I'm asking big questions that I didn't really even think of at the beginning, like, should these laws have any criteria at all? And, and if so, who gets to decide on that criteria? Who gets to decide who deserves death effectively? Mm. One of the people you focus on is an Australian who lost his medical license for um, teaching people how to exit at a DIY <laughs> death seminar. Yeah, I think. yeah. Tell me about these seminars. What, what, what do they entail? What, what is a, a DIY death seminar? Yeah, I've been to a few in different countries. So Dr. Philip Nitschke has become a sort of famous person in this movement. I sometimes describe him as a kind of modern day Jack Kevorkian on the internet. And that's not quite right, <laughs> but I think that's the sort of role he, he plays. And he was a doctor in Australia, a young doctor, when actually physician-assisted death was legalized in the state where he worked. And he helped a number of patients to die, but then the Australian government rescinded the law. And he started having to turn away patients who were coming to him, and he felt like he wanted to continue that work. And, and what he did is he started this kind of education campaign, I guess you could call it. He started a group called Exit International. And part of that work, especially at the beginning, involved, yeah, these DIY death seminars. Um, the ones I attended mostly had people in their 80s, people with white hair in the audience with notebooks taking notes. He'll start off sort of philosophically. He says a lot of things like, life is a gift, but if you can't throw a gift away, then it's not a gift, it's a burden. He'll say, I would rather die like a dog, referring to the euthanasia of sick pets. And then he gets quite technical. So he's talking to people about specific drugs they could try to access, ways to speak to their doctors to maybe get a hold of substances that could help them end their lives reliably. So it's philosophical and pragmatic in a way. Yeah, very pragmatic. And, and he makes this sort of harm reduction case uh, in part. He's saying people are going to take their lives anyway. He wants them to die peacefully. And he is also very organized online. And that has involved 
helping people who in their 80s, you know, set up encrypted email addresses, download the Tor web browser and start engaging with drug dealers. I mean, and this sounds crazy. This sounds really, really fringe. But I met people like, you know, your grandmothers, I'm sure, who were organizing in this way and not telling their families, mm. doing it on their own. I met people who have lied to their doctor, fabricated symptoms in order to access certain cardiac meds. I mean, when people feel scared and abandoned, I suppose, by the medical system, they research online, they find a way. This is why things are different now than they were 20 years ago when this started really being debated in the U.S. Yeah, thank goodness we have cryptocurrency, right? To, to buy these <laughs> drugs. So while reporting, and you just mentioned, you heard this phrase, I'd rather die like a dog, a lot. Yeah. And what is it about this this connection to pet euthanasia? What what? Why do you think people seem to grab onto it? Well, I think a lot of people have had the experience of putting down a sick pet. Pets they love. I mean, pets they cherish. And a lot of people remember those deaths as sort of acts of love and mercy. You know, they their beloved pet was suffering and they were able to end that suffering. And they ask why human beings don't have the same opportunity. And it's a shocking statement because if you think about it in the context of the American medical system, America spends more per capita on healthcare than any other country in the world. A hugely disproportionate amount of healthcare funding is spent on people in the last years of their lives. And still people are asking for, you know, a procedure that veterinarians perform. Mm -hmm. Regarding the U.S., what are the current right-to-die laws in the U.S., and, and how are these different in other countries, and why? The laws are really different. So in the United States, it all started in Oregon in the 90s, and basically these nine other jurisdictions have copied the Oregon law almost exactly. The law is really strict, so a person has to be over 18, of sound mind. They have to be terminally ill, and they're quote, natural death, we could talk about that later, has to be reasonable, you know, within six months. So we're really talking about people who are dying and going to die soon anyway. In a lot of cases, people end up using this law to shorten their lives by days or weeks. A lot of people choose it who really just want to avoid that last stretch of in and out of sedation, confusion, maybe pain. In other countries, the law is really different. So even if you just look at Canada, there's not a cut and dry time limit. You know, a person needs to be this many weeks from death. The law's a lot looser and more subjective. It allows patients who are, quote, suffering unbearably to access this. And mm. the law recognizes that it's really only an individual who can define what unbearable is. And then we get into even more liberal laws. So if you go to Europe, to Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, people with mental illnesses, but not physical illnesses can qualify. People with dementia can qualify. In Belgium, people, children under 18 can qualify. Wow. So these laws do get broader over time in some places. And that's something that critics really fear. And it hasn't happened in the U.S. yet. You know, the states that do permit medically assisted death they don't give pretty specific guidance, actually. So so there's this big, I mean, it's a little bit like cannabis law. So it's just like in between, right? And and so 
how do people find out what drugs to use? And should the, in your opinion, do you think that, that the government should be telling us, look, you're allowed to do it if you, if you qualify in this, this, and this way, but you have to use this drug and it can be provided through this source? Yeah. I mean, you're right that what state legislatures do is they legalize this new kind of dying into being, but they don't tell anyone exactly how to carry it out. But that's really how medicine works, right? We don't have doctors saying, you know, when someone has cancer that's this serious, we mandate chemotherapy and this is the dose you should give. Things usually evolve by what we call standards of care in medicine. In the U.S., things get a little complicated. In most countries where assisted death is legal, most people die by an injection given by a physician. The injections always work. They're really quick. Someone will fall asleep within a few minutes. Their heart will stop beating within around 20 minutes. That's it. Doctors, you know, at the bedside and then steps back and the family steps in. In the United States, states require that patients administer the drugs themselves, which usually involves drinking some sort of solution. And this is more complicated and sometimes the solutions don't work that well or they take a really long time. Once in Oregon, someone took 104 hours to die after ingesting the solution. And you're right too that doctors don't, you know, they're not given strict instructions on what drugs to use. At the beginning, they were using this drug from Europe, a barbiturate called pentobarbital. But the European Union found out that sometimes that drug was ending up in prisons and was being used as part of death row executions. And of course, the European Union and most civilized countries in the world, almost all, oppose capital punishment. And so they put an export ban on it, which sent doctors scrambling. So they've come up with this cocktail, I guess, of cardiac and respiratory drugs. But, you know, they had to come up with that by trial and error, really on patients, because, you know, as one doctor told me, there aren't drugs designed to kill humans and nobody teaches you how to do it in medical school. Wow. So there was a lot of experimenting going on in terms of figuring this out or... It wasn't fully experimenting, but different formulas were used. And really the formula that's in effect now is a variation of something that some doctors in Washington state came up with a few years ago. They sort of self-appointed themselves. They, they wanted to find something that could be easily manufactured, that would be inexpensive to patients. That was really important. They wanted it to be under $500. So there was a group of them, a couple of anesthesiologists, I think a cardiac specialist. There was a veterinarian as part of the group who they consulted because of course he had experience euthanizing large animals. And so they came up with this, this cocktail. But um, certainly that's, I mean, it's less of a problem in other countries because again, people almost always prefer an injection from a physician. Mm. We were talking a little earlier about the sort of underground euthanasia movement, the, the seminars and the conferences. Yeah. I was wondering, how are the people that are helping, you know, your 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 son, your daughter, you know, anyone close to you, the people that are actually assisting you in this end of life process, how do they deal with the possibility of, of prosecution? I mean, yeah. is it murder? How do, you know, how does this all work? Yeah. I mean, it's very real. You know, as you can imagine, I had some pretty weird Google alerts set on my phone while writing this book, but one of them was something like spouse plus dementia plus uh, mercy killing, really. And I mm. found, you know, it wasn't that uncommon that, say, a man in his 80s would help his wife or vice versa, who was very sick or had dementia, and, and that person would, you know, face some legal trouble afterwards. Suicide is legal, but oddly, the act of a 
helping someone commit the legal act of suicide is illegal. So families certainly really worry about that and they have to be really careful. And some of these underground groups offer very specific advice, you know, when your loved one takes the substance, I mean, go to the store, buy something, make sure the receipt has a timestamp on it, come back, drop the receipt on the counter, wait 20 minutes, you know, call the police and be prepared for this. But I think that's why, you know, sometimes I think people assume the right to die debate is sort of a metaphorical one. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to take their lives anyway. Who cares if there's a law? If they really want to do it, they can just do it. And they can, but most people that I met, they've never broken the law in their lives. They don't want to. The idea that when they're really sick and just want to spend time with family, they have to, I don't know, source drugs, lie to their doctors, maybe die in secret so their children don't get in trouble. I mean, that's just horrifying to them. Mm. Everyone I talk to pretty much wants to die with family and in the bed with them or, you know, a, a pet at their side. Did you come across people who actually, in fact, had been prosecuted for assisting? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I actually just got an email the other day from a woman who'd read my book and telling me a story of she handed her 93-year-old father some morphine when he was dying. Morphine had been prescribed to him and she handed him, I guess, the whole bottle and he drank it and, and she was prosecuted afterwards. So it does happen. And sometimes people aren't prosecuted, but they're sort of threatened with it and investigated for a while. And that's really traumatic. But also just for the person who's dying, it's incredibly stressful to imagine that their loved ones could be prosecuted. Mm. And so people try to hide it in different ways. Sometimes they just write suicide notes. You know, I've done this alone. Nobody helped me. And they hope that that will be enough. And, you know, again, I think a lot of people don't feel like they can discuss these things with their doctors. But I do, I have met a number of doctors who have some variation of a story like, you know, I used to be opposed to assisted death and or even when it was legalized in my state, I decided I wasn't going to do it. And then I had this patient who shot himself in the head on his balcony and his wife came and found his body. And I realized I needed to help people in a way that I, I wasn't doing before. So I, I met a number of doctors who were traumatized by suicides mm. of their sick patients. I wanted to bring up to sort of access to these options or access yeah. to certain options in relationship to race. Was that something that you found during the, the reporting of this book? Yeah, absolutely. There's a racial dynamic to this. When you look at the best data comes from Oregon. Mm. You know, a funny thing about the American debate is, you know, every time a state starts debating this, like it's as if they are reinventing the wheel and they're, you know, you know, they're they're making up these laws as they go. There's actually 25 years of data from Oregon on exactly mm. who chooses this option and why. And you see it's almost all white people. It's almost all professionals, some amount of college education, medical insurance. These people tend to score low on measures of spirituality if if they're tested on that scale. Hmm. And I think there's different reasons for that. In part, you you know, I I talk to doctors, they do have some African-American patients in particular who just have a lot of understandable fear of the medical system. They were alive at a time when white doctors did experiments on on black bodies, completely unethical, illegal experiments. And they worry about, you know, even engaging a doctor in a conversation about hastening death. I mean, that's that could be terrifying. Mm. And I think people have, you know, been aware of that. I think there's also an access issue 
So if we look at palliative care, that's just kind of end of life care, pain management at the end of life, African-Americans are way less likely to access good palliative care, less likely to have a living will or an advanced directive written out stating like what they want, what their wishes are. So I think it's possible also that this is just, you know, it's another kind of end of life care that for a number of reasons, people in different communities aren't able to access. Mm. I found it really interesting that you note how most people who ask to die are reportedly not in pain. Yeah. And that they largely cite losing autonomy as their reason. Was this striking to you, this idea that, because I mean, on a sort of basic level, one would probably assume that pain was the leading reason. Absolutely. I assumed that people were dying in pain or they didn't want to, they wanted to cut it short. And certainly that's what critics Mm -hmm. worry about. They say, well, we have all these people in the United States who don't have very good healthcare access. What if they get such bad healthcare access that they are in pain and this pain drives them towards death? Mm -hmm. That's not really what's happened in the States where it's legal. People are worried about pain, but it's more what pain will come. They're wondering what the end will be like. Mm -hmm. They're way more concerned about what they call dignity, autonomy, losing the ability to take care of themselves, to do things they like. And dignity is this really fuzzy concept. And so I'd ask people, you know, what do you mean by dignity? Because everyone says it, it's sort of like a buzzword for this movement. Mm -hmm. And usually I find people couldn't really say what they thought was dignified, but they knew immediately what was undignified. Mm -hmm. So they had this ideas about long deaths, painful deaths, A lot of people talk to me about the loss of bowel and bladder control Mm incontinence. And that was pretty shocking to me. I mean, for a lot of people, you know, I could start out the conversation thinking I was going to have this, you know, super philosophical exchange about what autonomy and dignity meant. And people told me, you know, as soon as I can't wipe my own ass, I want to die. Like it was, it was really that simple. And a lot of doctors I talked to said the same thing. I spent a lot of time with a nurse in California who, you know, was with patients during assisted deaths. And she said it's the number one thing she's asked is Mm. about bowel control. Mm. I wanted to return to the phrase natural death, which you brought up earlier. Could you elaborate on that phrase and the meaning of it? Like what defines a natural death? Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, we think of natural death as just something that I guess it's the opposite of physician assistance. It's just, you know, someone dies of their cancer or someone dies of, you know, their heart disease. But I always feel like I want to use air quotes when I'm saying natural because most deaths involve a lot of medical intervention. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anyone has seen parent or grandparent die in a hospital, I'm just talking about normal deaths, nothing particularly traumatic. They involve machines, they involve drugs, they involve a lot of different sorts of interventions. Oftentimes, you know, yes, someone is dying because of their cancer, but really in the end, they'll be offered sedative drugs and they'll die of dehydration and kidney failure because they're asleep Mm -hmm. and they're not consuming things. So I think the idea of like a natural death, like people have maybe read about in novels, it doesn't happen very often. And in part, that's because people need certain access to medications. I think I also use air quotes because... You know, physician-assisted death is held up as this very other thing. It's this very radical 
thing. But in fact, doctors do a lot already to quicken deaths. And they do it in a way that's completely legal and sometimes completely um, without the knowledge or understanding of the family. So already it's completely legal in the United States for doctors to give sedating drugs to patients at the ends of their lives. And some doctors, when a patient seems to be in extreme pain, will give so so much sedative drug that the patient falls asleep and then and then dies shortly after. They may ask, they may tell the family what they're doing, they may not. It's completely legal for them to not, to just decide that this is required in terms of pain management. And so, yeah, doctors are already doing this. Mm. I mean, health insurance companies are doing it in terms of, you know, approving or not approving certain treatments for cancer or, or things that, that, that just simply cost a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a worry in the American context. Like, you know, someone qualifies once they're terminal, but why did they get to the terminal state? Were there things that could have been done earlier interventions to prevent them from getting there anyway? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had this very powerful experience for me. I was in Belgium and I was doing a bunch of reporting. And there, as I said, the laws, you know, really liberal, all sorts of patients qualify. And I met this doctor who's literally famous in Belgium for being like the euthanasia guy. And he's involved in a ton of euthanasia cases in the country. And we're talking about the laws and I I bring up the American laws and he physically recoiled, like leaned back in his chair and grimaced. And he said something along the lines of, it's completely immoral for the United States to have these laws you cannot offer a right to die until you offer a right to health care. Mm. And the United States has, I think his words were developing world health care. And he didn't think that was a solid enough foundation for a law like this. And certainly the other countries where it's legal, Canada, Europe, a few others, they have some sort of national health care access for everyone. So we're speaking at a moment when the vaccine is, is now widely available, at least in New York, to people over 30, but we're still in a global pandemic. There are all sorts of variants. We were curious, do you think that we're thinking about death differently? Do you think that shifted because of COVID globally? I think it has to have shifted because of our proximity to it. I mean, people know people who have died recently, but also we've all seen images of these ventilator deaths and and these hospital deaths and mass graves, people suffering for air. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of doctors tell me that's the worst way to die is with air hunger, like feeling like you're short of breath. And we do know that more people in the United States are filling out advanced directives. So they're at least creating documents and sometimes they're more binding than other times, but saying what they want. You know, if I ever get sick, I do or don't want to be put on a ventilator. I do or don't want you to take the chance of, this kind of surgery. And so I think that means that people are wanting more control because a lot of times, I mean, this has happened in my family too. I mean, if you've seen a normal death, it often feels like there aren't decisions being made. There just comes this moment where all of a sudden one thing leads to the other and yeah, grandma's being given this and that. No, yeah, of course now a hospital makes sense and treatment to treatment and all of a sudden it's over and, and she's out of it. And I think people don't want that. I think they do want more control because decisions will be made. It's just whether it's by you or by the medical team. <laughs> exactly. 
You recently won a George Polk Award for for what happened in Room 10, a story um, for California Sunday Magazine that came out late August Mm -hmm. about the Life Care Center of Kirkland, for those of you who don't know, a nursing home near Seattle, which should publicly confirm the existence of a coronavirus outbreak. What was it like reporting on that story while also finishing the book on the right to die? (laughs) And then connected to that on a personal level, how have you dealt with reporting on so much death, loss, grief? I mean, yeah, I wrote this big story about, as you said, that it was the first nursing home outbreak in the United States. And also it was the first nursing home to be sued by the family member of someone who died of COVID. And really it became this just like enormous 16,000 word story about the American nursing home, the way that for-profit companies, private equity companies have transforms the industry, the chronic lack of regulation or just bad regulation. And I'd been interested in nursing homes for some time because I started to to really see the ways in which older people in this country who are not wealthy, who don't have a lot of financial leeway, end up being pushed into institutions. You know, the classic case is someone's hovering above the Medicaid line. They don't qualify for Medicaid, but they, they, you know, they're living off social security. They can't afford someone to come and stay in their home um, to help care for them. And Medicare doesn't pay for it, surprise. <laughs> and basically they have no choice but to wait for a disaster. They'll fall, they'll break a bone, they'll set the kitchen on fire, and then they'll end up in a nursing home. And I was interested in why that system exists. And once they get into a nursing home, by the way, they'll spend their entire life savings, probably in the course of a year. We're talking about 10 grand a month on these places. And then they'll go on Medicaid and they'll stay there until they die. I knew that, you know, in the United States, especially medical, you know, systems don't develop by accident. Someone is gaining from them. Mm. And I wanted to know why the incentive structures were the way that they were. Why wouldn't you give someone $5,000 a year to fund a home health care aid instead of spending $100,000 a year in a nursing home. There has to be a reason, and, and there is, for people who read the story. I guess in a way, I, I started reporting a lot more on older Americans while I wrote my book. I am not an older American, which is always a, a huge surprise to people when I showed up for an interview. But, you know, I really found that this group is ignored a lot by journalism. And I think this is starting to change because of COVID, but by nature of newsrooms, you know, there aren't, people in their 80s in the newsroom. And oftentimes people who are older, if they're frail and sick, they they can't march on Washington. They can't advocate for themselves that easily. I think there's a lot of ageism. When I read stories about older people, everyone's a sweet little old lady or a bitchy little old lady or whatever it is. No one's like a complicated person who's had a rich life. Mm. So yeah, I actually found there was just this huge amount of space for me to report on these issues that people were completely ignoring. Mm. I still read tons of articles about nursing homes in the United States that don't quote a single person living in the nursing home. Mm. That's wild to me. I mean, in no, I I think, you know, journalism's got a lot smarter in the last decade or whatever about diversity and inclusion. There's, There's a lot of room for improvement, but you could never write about like, the African-American community in a, in a city and not interview a single person from that community. That's, mm. that would be a, a, a very bad journalist who, who does that. And so, but I, but I find that all the time when we're talking about older adults, 
So yeah, one thing has sort of led to the other. It's become a, a sort of unexpected beat, but that's where I am. And how, how, how do you feel about all this personally writing on death, nursing homes? I mean, do you pine to write about something <laughs> I else? always joke my next book will be about healthy, happy babies yeah. um, <laughs> playing. That want to live. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, probably something that could be analyzed by a therapist in this. But, you know, I do, I do, I always have thought about death and dying and I've always felt fear. And I think that, I guess there's two human responses to that. One is to run away and one is to run towards it. And I've been running towards it. And I think this is a kind of moment where, you know, baby boomers, as we know, are used to getting what they want and they have money to get what they want. And they've seen the way their parents died and they just don't want it. So I think we're we're in this moment where there's going to be big changes and we should be deliberate in how we involve ourselves. I mean, end of life care in the United States has all the same issues as the rest of healthcare. It's not like hospice is this, you know, nice thing provided by, as in the old days, like British, you know, nuns or whatever, who are just being benevolent. I mean, it's a billion dollar industry with a huge amount of private equity stake. I mean, all sorts of forces are, are mm. taking over this, this extremely lucrative kind of healthcare. And I think we all have to pay a lot more attention because I, I, I certainly hope that things are better by the time I I get to an advanced age. I mean, I'm exactly that group. I'm a journalist, you know, I'm a journalist. Yeah. I'm exactly that group that would not be able to afford a home health care aid and would end up stuck in a in a place I don't want to live. One last point about end of life care. Do you see a future where there are kind of more beautiful spaces for end of life deaths kind of like intentionally designed to be like a beautiful room to die in, so to speak? Yeah. There's a lot of conversation now, for instance, I think we're all realizing that having enormous nursing homes with 200 people in them, or it's probably not a good idea and they're not nice places anyway. And by the way, before COVID, hundreds of thousands of older people died of the flu in institutions every year. It's not like these people weren't being harmed, but one of the models that people talk a lot about is the greenhouse model that exists in, in Europe, especially, and it's just these smaller homes where you'll have aides who actually live in the home and maybe they're older or sick adults who live there and they really form a community and the design is really intentional. And I've been to some houses in the United States, even that hospice houses that sort of operate on this model. And they've thought of, I mean, they thought of everything. The, they'll have big sliding doors that open onto these patios, but the doors are wide enough to accommodate an entire bed on wheels so mm. that someone can just be brought out into the garden on her bed and they're really designed to feel home-like. So I think, I suspect we'll see a little bit more of that. The problem now is just that a lot of those options are really expensive. It's cheaper to build something that looks like a hospital, I guess. But most people want to, most people want to die at home in their own homes because that's the space they like. Yeah. And so I think there'll also be changes in the way that hospice is done to help people because right now it's really patchy, the kind of access you get. I mean, I'm sure we could get into it, but the connection between prison design and, and these hospice designs are kind of eerily connected. Yeah, the concept of like the total institution. I mean, when you're in a nursing home, you, you become a professional patient and Theoretically, you know, you're getting a couple of hours of 
human to human contact today, but that's as a patient, you're being given meds, you're being turned over, you're being given a bath. There aren't requirements on nursing homes to have X number of hours a day just to be social or for human touch or, you know, Mm -hmm. for any of these other things. Nursing homes are measured on, you know, how many people get infections and bed sores. They're not measured on how people living in the nursing home rank their quality of life, whether they're lonely, whether they're happy, whether they like where they're living. Mm. We don't measure those things at all. So final question, as we emerge from this moment and from this pandemic, what's giving you the most hope as a journalist and and also in this larger conversation we're having about end-of-life care? I'm never asked about optimism. (laughs) Shocking, but, um, you know, I think... (laughs) I think people are getting a little less squeamish. I mean, part of the purpose for me in writing this book was like I refused to write a book about death that was euphemistic, where people like slipped away or passed on. I wanted to just be really direct when I talked about everything related to the body and its decline. And I think people are becoming less squeamish. I mean, as I said, people are making plans. I think people are having conversations as families. I think they're having conversations with their doctors. And I think that's important. Some people say, you know, death to our eras, like sex was to the Victorians, sort of just undiscussed. <laughs> Everyone does it, but but no one talks about it. And I, I think, you know, maybe it's sort of like in a cheesy equivocal answer, but I think being more honest about it, being more direct can only help us. Mm. It's a great note to end on. <laughs> Katie, thanks so much for coming on today. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.